When I first started doing the bomb work, it was often vilified. I even had people in the art world tell me that artists shouldn't be allowed to discuss this sort of material, that, that that's not the role of art. Hello, and welcome to AI Arts In, the podcast sponsored by Creative Pinellas. I'm Barbara St. Clair, your host, and with me today is Gregory Green, who is an internationally recognized artist, teaches at University of South Florida and works in three dimensions and is uh, in a dialogue, I think, with issues and ideas that are very important in our world today. You have an installation at the MFA in uh, St. Petersburg. Yes. Walk us through that installation. What it is is a simulation of a terrorist bomb factory, and I originally started doing these in 1992. I've done a total of 10 now, and this is the last one. Um, and it was originally done for a show at the Walker in Minneapolis. The show was called Absentee Landlord, and it was curated by the filmmaker John Waters, who has a bomb factory installation in his house in Baltimore. That piece then went on to a one-person show at Anna Costera Gallery in New York City that closed right before Hurricane Sandy. The gallery was flooded with about two feet of water, and about half of the materials were, were destroyed. So this is a recreation of the original one. And when I first started doing them, they were really about how people can affect and change the world, and about the potential for chaos in the world. They started out as rather simple, and they, they slowly, as they slowly evolved, I started to develop characters that were the bombers, you know, or some sort of target, to contextualize the piece. The one in John Waters' attic is, is rather funny. I worked on it for a month um, with him, and was trying to develop a character. And I kept coming up with different ideas. And he was like, no, 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 not that. No, 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 that's my next movie. I can't, no, no, no. <laughs> and so I got really frustrated. I finally said, all right, John, what do you hate most in the world? And he said, sports. <laughs> and I hate they're building a new stadium. And so the piece was, ended up being someone uh, who was going to blow up the new stadium in Baltimore. And the mayor of Baltimore actually loved the piece. So. <laughs> but anyway, this piece, the character is essentially sort of a white nationalist. Take the first two categories that uh, Homeland Security defines as the biggest threat to the United States, which is American-based. And it's basically a combination of those two directions, from the violent white nationalists to the violent Christian terrorists. And so what do you see in the room? <laughs> Thousands of pieces of things. Right. <laughs> There's two ta tables that are sitting on a drop cloth. One table is a sort of construction table, um, and the other table is set up as a place where a person would mix the explosives and add them to the actual bombs. And in terms of mechanics, everything is correct, but everything is also non-functional, and there's also no dangerous materials. For instance, you know, if I had the three components for black powder there, the piece would be illegal. And though it looks like I have the three components, you know, one's salt, one is yellow cake mix, and you know, so. And then on top of that, um, there's all sorts of books, newspaper clippings, and other materials that if you take the time and actually sort of start to look, you can sort of get a sense of that character and the mindset of that character in that particular piece. And this one was a male, 
out of the nine, I did one female. It's in it's in the dark, um, and it's only lit by the two work work lamps on the table, and those sorts of things are actually very important for these sorts of pieces. One of the things that I want the viewer to come away with or to experience is as though they walked into a secret space and whoever the bomb maker is just stepped out. Right. That's a really important thing within the works. So why is that important? It increases the power and intensity of the experience and the theatricality of it. Also, when I first started doing these, I was mostly, well, I started in Europe and the Europeans loved them. Because uh, what they they called they for, to begin with they called them quintessentially American. It's like the lone cowboy sort of thing. But on the other end, what they also really valued in the works was they saw it as a window into a world that they've never seen. They've seen the results of you know bombings and things like that, but they've never seen like you know where the person might be building them and what that looks like. That's sort of all about the theatricality of these works. I do do sculpture mostly, but I also do basically everything else. Although I can't paint. I, I, I have no ability to move paint around. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I also did a lot of performance art earlier in my career. So an element of theatricality is very important. And related to that theatricality within these, these particular works, and a lot of the other works as well, is I'm trying to change or even disrupt the viewer's normal relationship to a gallery space or a museum. Just throw the viewer off. Certainly a basement room or a dark room with bomb-making equipment and detritus all over the floor and the feeling that the bomber stepped out and you just happened to fall into that space... Uh, is disruptive. You don't expect a, that to be in a museum. But you mentioned theatricality, and yet you also are describing something that, that, that really is uh, quite real. Most often, these works wouldn't be shown in an open gallery space with other works. They would be literally, you would go into another room that wouldn't even necessarily be a gallery room might be a workroom that they cleaned out or something, so that you're actually truly transported to another place, another environment. They're most powerful in those situations, but they also they also have a, a good impact yeah. in a normal gallery space when well, properly installed. What happens yeah. in that transportation? Suddenly feeling like you're not in a museum and feeling like, you know, somebody, the whoever that crazy person is, might be walking in at any moment. So, you know, we expect that when we walk into a museum, that there's not going to be anything threatening, and there's not going to be anything violent, which is, of course, false. If you look, you know, if you go to a good museum with lots of historical paintings, there's war, there's death, there's rape, there's murder. Um, but culturally, we've learned to see them in different sorts of ways. Mm -hmm. So that idea of the sense of the real and disrupting the viewer, hopefully makes them not only re-examine the relationship to art, a museum or a gallery, but also to consider the state of our current world and the potential for violence. So it was interesting to me that you said when you could walk into that space and feel that the character who's building that bomb might come back at any second, and that that would be really frightening. Yes. 
If you're frightening somebody as an artist, then you're you're not inviting them to be complicit with that bomb maker. Well, I don't I don't want them to identify with the bomber. Right. Because <laughs> within the construct of my work that explores, you know, strategies of empowerment and change. You know, I started with violence, which we historically understand how, you know, people change their societies and move and move through a whole series of different strategies, eventually ending up with non-participation as the most powerful way to change society. Uh, a lot of the Russians that I know in the art world, they've said that the breakup of the Soviet Union essentially happened because people just stopped participating with the system and started working outside of the system. And so in between terrorist bombing and I'm not going to play your game anymore, um, there are a whole series of different steps of upping the violence, then going to alternative systems of information. Like I've done a numerous pirate radio and pirate television stations and a whole host of other sort of subgroups of works that the terrorist work was the root of and the start of. And that older work was very formal, but a lot of it was incredibly dangerous and could actually kill somebody. Uh, Your work? Yes, is, my work in the mid-80s. Is that the work with the saw blades and Yeah, saw like blades, um, 100,000 volts of high-frequency electricity shooting out of the wall, those sorts of pieces. The idea of placing a bomb in a museum is a transgressive act, particularly when I don't let, let the viewer know whether it's actually functional or not, which usually elicits a lot of uh, press interest and press response. And then I go on to use that response as a format to talk about what the work is about and to specifically talk about alternatives to violence as a way to change your world and affect your world. And that was very, very successful in the 90s. But after 9-11, the art world and <laughs> The press wanted to stay away from lots of, lots of discussions like that. Before 9-11, Art Forum rated me as one of the top 100 artists in the world. And I was becoming very, very, very successful, both financially and in terms of my career. But after 9-11, everything changed. Numerous commissions were canceled. Museum shows were canceled. In 97, a collector of my work had, was having his house painted in the public areas in the house. I told the painters, don't go outside of the rooms we're painting. And of course they went into the other rooms and he owned one, one of my pipe bombs and he had it sitting underneath a chair in, his, in the bedroom. And the painter saw it, called the uh, police, bomb squad showed up. And I'd already had another major incident with them previously where I met and got to know the head of the bomb squad very well and actually carried his business card with me wow. um, for ages <laughs> until he died because he said, you know, if anything ever happens, just give them my number and tell them to call me. Mm -hmm. um, so the bomb squad showed up at this collector's home. They came in, you know, emptied everybody out. And then the head of the bomb squad came in and he told me this story. And he said, well, I walked into the bedroom, I looked under the chair, and I said, that's a Gregory Green, let's go. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, the FBI has a, a slide registry of, of all of my bomb-related work. Oh, wow. But I've had about uh, 15 or 16 encounters with the authorities in wow. the United States and in Europe wow. relative to the work. And they've always had to apologize in the end. But I also research the law very carefully so that I don't do something 
that would actually put me in prison. It often seems that terrorists perpetrate their acts of terror so that they get media coverage. So they get put on the map so that their story can be heard. But they're also engaged in acts of violence. Mm -hmm. But there's a huge difference between doing that in the manner that you do that. Yes, yes. Yes, that's why, that's why I now use Jeffrey Deitch's phrase, conceptual terrorism. Mm-hmm. I'm playing with the viewer's mind. And in that play, I'm offered the opportunity to basically explain what in the world's going on. And in that context, then I go on to my other agendas. The new free state of Caroline is one of them. Uh, according to international law, Any territory that is in dispute, has no historically indigenous population, and is presently uninhabited, is up for anyone to claim, from an individual to a nation. Then you have to go through a process to be recognized as a new nation. And using those laws, or those rules, and the UN and the World Court, and writing to them, um, in 1996, I laid claim to Caroline Island and the Line Islands in the South Pacific. And I was one of five claimants. It was myself, it was the United States, it was Japan, it was Australia, and a Polynesian nation called Kiribati. And uh, from 96 to 99, at the UN and at the World Court, I was listed as one of the claimants. And in 98, with Max Protex Gallery in New York City, who I was working with at that point, we were actually planning a show where architects would design structures that would be built on the island, because inhabiting it is one of the requirements. But in 99, archaeologists found evidence of Polynesian fire pits. And at that point, the, the territory was officially given to Kiribati. And if you watch the Around the World Millennium celebrations, the very first one with Polynesian people on the beach. That was actually the new free state of Caroline, now known as Millennium Island. (laughs) (laughs) And since then, I've claimed two new islands that I'm not sure it's going to work out. Um, But some of the future work is going to concentrate a lot more on uh, the new free state of Caroline. I first started in 1996 on that project, so I have uh, 13 different consulates uh, in Europe and the United States for the country, and they're at different museums and different galleries. This sounds like a quite different kind of experience for a viewer. Well, um, you know, it's actually um, related to the other works as well, the pirate Mm -hmm. radio stations, the terrorist stuff. It's all about education on a certain sort of level. Most people are like, what? You can do that? How can you do that? Uh, you know, all of the things on many levels are sort of educational. It's like, hey, did you know you could do this? And I built seven nuclear bombs, one of which was uh, looked at by nuclear physicists in London at the Saatchi Gallery. And they said they could see no reason why it would not work if I had the explosives and the plutonium. Mm. And, you know, doing that, it's like, hey, If some Yahoo from Brooklyn, where I lived at the time, with an MFA in time arts, actually, (laughs) can go online, learn how to build a nuclear bomb, and actually build the physical structure properly, what does that mean for the world? (laughs) 
There's other projects like Gregnik, which is trying to reproduce as an individual the Sputnik. That's a, still an ongoing project. And one day, maybe I'll be able to put something up. Um, and you'd be surprised how inexpensive it you actually is. put it up in space. In space, yeah, in low, low Earth orbit. We haven't talked about your interest in technology, but... <laughs> I've always been a nerd. <laughs> a nerd. One of the things I say to my students and always in my lectures, if you can cook from a cookbook, you can do anything. As long as you know how to follow instructions, it's easy. For me, on the one hand, your work is very straightforward. It is. You're building a rocket ship that can go into space and... On the other hand, I want to go back to your conceptual notion. You're really doing something. You're engaging with the world, and you're very purposeful about it. Oh, yes. Well, I've always been a political artist. Um, all, my, all my work's politically based or socially based. You know, it all could, probably goes back to when I was a little kid. I was born in 1959, so, you know, I was a Cold War baby, um, and my father was in the Air Force, and I spent uh, 12 years of my childhood in France and in Belgium. And in that whole period, when I was very young and lived in France, we were still doing Duck and Cover, when in the States they'd already they'd stopped it. Mm. But the reason we were doing it was that if a war did break out, the first battleground was going to be Europe. And duck and cover for millennials. It's uh, a lot of you will know this, <laughs> but it was uh, done in uh, school classrooms, and it was a rehearsal for an atomic attack, where if a, an a, a nuclear bomb went off nearby, you would hide under your desk to protect yourself. Right. Yeah. Certainly, in its own way, conceptual terrorism. <laughs> oh yes, yes, but that 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 young kid was very politically aware, and Europe at that point was very, very politically active. I always grew up with the sense that I would probably never live past the year 2000. And so, you know, I was like a scared child trapped between two superpowers with no control over my life. And part of that was also due to growing up in the Air Force, where you're suddenly picked up and moved as well. Right. So when my first serious work started in 1979 or 1980, my early work explored strategies and techniques that any institution of power can utilize to manipulate and control the populations, the citizens. The work, starting with the terrorist work, was in response to that earlier work. That earlier work was basically me playing the role of the victim. And in 1988, I had a dream that I had to build a pipe bomb. And so I did it, and it was in my studio. And there were no explosives, though. Yeah. <laughs> it took two years before suddenly the light bulb went off. And that light bulb was, Gregory, you're tired of being the victim and talking about how people are victimized. Let's start, let's start empowering ourselves. How can we fight back? And so that was sort of the root to all of the work that I've been doing since 90. So this work, you're, you're actually, it's work of liberation. You're yes. liberating yourself yes. from, from a, 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 a feeling of oppression and a feeling of victimization and a feeling of being disempowered. And you're taking yourself through a process, or have taken yourself through a process, because you said you're, you're moving on to a different work now. Yeah, exactly. So that's, that's very interesting to associate these tools of violence 
with liberating your soul, you know, with becoming more free. There is irony in it, but um, it's sort of, uh, you know, on a base level, it's sort of like, you know, if somebody's pushing you against the wall, you push back. You know, you've got the toolkits and the chemicals and the wires and all that, all those things. But in this conversation, you've said many times, they don't work. Right. There's not the ability to turn that into violence. Right. So you're already doing something kind of, as you called it, transgressive. You're, you changed your work in 1988 to build tools of power. And they, they worked, I think, because where your work is now in 2017, you're finished with that and moving on right. and, and have been moving on. But even using those tools of, of, of pain and, you know, negative power, you, you diffused them. You took away the, the, the one thing that would have made them destructive. It, it, it's just incredibly, and no pun intended, explosive, <laughs> I think, as you start to explore that. Mm-hmm. It doesn't let you go. Essentially, the work is a visceral experience of the fear, dread of our global world society now and the United States. It's going back to less narrative things and more primal and instinctual reactions and ideas that parallel the sort of trauma and the fear that has developed since the election. It goes back to the old saw blade work. There would be like a grid of motors seemingly attached to the actual wall, and then saw blades were attached to those motors. And then there was a switch um, that you could turn the saw blades on. And the motors were from circular saws. And so the blades would spin at 3200 RPM. And at different points, the blades were ground across each other to to reflect light as they spin. And at a certain speed, the multiple reflections actually throws off your sense of balance. So viewers that would be standing in front of the pieces as the blades were slowing down, um, because they start up really fast, at a certain point of that slowing down phase, you could see everybody in the room sort of leaning forward and leaning back. Oh no. And these pieces, those pieces, when I originally did them, you know, the largest one I did had 40 saw blades in it. But imagine you walk into a gallery and one, two, three, or four of the walls are covered by a thousand saw blades and motors. And they're all running constantly. And that if you touched it, you would be eaten up. Uh, Not too badly because the blades are actually spinning in the opposite direction they should to cut. Um, I'm not totally crazy. Another particular piece is I want to have eight to foot, eight to nine foot lightning bolts coming out of the floor. It would be a room you wouldn't be allowed to go into. You could only look at it. And then a third one in terms of the new work. Imagine a giant ball of tires on axles that all go down to an engine that will spin, let's say the the ball has 16 tires on it, regular car tires. It's all set up so the engine on the inside when it's turned on would begin spinning every one of the tires. And if that piece was particularly turned on, it would actually just become a random bouncing uncontrolled ball within a space or an outdoor space. The title of that is Orange and the wheel hubs are going to be 
painted gloss orange, and then the tires will be white tires. So it's really a portrait of Donald Trump. It's, it's sort of presenting these scenarios of intense threat, which mirrors what I'm feeling now. Often political work, if it's very time or issue specific, loses its relevance after a certain amount of time. And the most successful political work is the work that talks about sort of universal themes and can cross over the different time periods and different generations. I know you've described yourself as a political artist and your art is engaging with a very political world, but it's, I, I cannot define you for myself as a political artist. That seems too limiting. Normally, if I'm like doing a short sort of like, you know, what do you do? I, I'll say that I, I discuss social and political uh, issues within our world. Mm -hmm. and the relationship of the individual to those, those issues um, and those situations. I don't give them an answer, but I just ask a big scary question and then they have to figure it out and put it within context. And sometimes they put it in the context of the exact opposite of what I would like, but that's perfectly fine. When I first started doing the, uh, the bomb work, not in Europe, um, but in the United States, it was often vilified. I even had people in the art world tell me that artists shouldn't be allowed to discuss this sort of material, that, that that's not the role of art. They're, they're wrong. <laughs> they, they are wrong. <laughs> the, the arts are central to defining who we are, our societies, our, our communities. Sometimes finding the right words, I think, can also take the power away from the work. I, I think one of the central things with, within the effectiveness of the various things I've done is that unknown and the viewer's experience of that. And you know, the simple question used to be, are you criticizing violence or are you pr pr promoting violence? My, my answers would usually talk about all of the bodies of work and that it's actually a critique of violence. And myself, I'm a total pacifist, but I think I might enjoy leaving the viewer lost, perplexed, and unsure whether they're in danger or not, and how that changes the relationship to what art can be. Because, you know, we talk about art, we're, we're talking about art right now, and we're talking about the traditional fine arts. But, you know, that's just one segment of the arts. Movies, you know, the glorification of violence in movies, the criticism of violence in movies, all of these things are out there. Whenever anybody has been offended by these sorts of pieces, I would have the gallery or the museum or myself would ask them, well, if I made this and then photographed it in my studio, and just showed the photographs, would that be okay? And almost universally, people would say, yes, if it was a photograph, it'd be fine. And so this sort of takes us back to that sort of sense of the real and the theatricality and how important that is to me within my work. And that even comes down to, you know, if I'm going to show a pipe bomb, is it gonna go on a pedestal or in a vitrine? No, it's gotta go on a floor in a sort of out-of-the-way place so that it's, your discovery of it is 
sort of surreptitious. You don't get the protection of distance right. as a, a viewer. Yeah. So you mentioned just in passing about pirate radio and TV, and I was hoping you could give us a little more about what that sure. is. Sure. That sort of falls within the concept of the idea of alternative systems or independent systems. And in 1996, I did the first pirate radio station in London, and I've done, oh, probably 16, 17, 18 since then, they are fully functional pirate FM radio broadcast systems and also television broadcast systems. And they are set up as an open forum for anybody to come in and broadcast whatever they like. Although if they're broadcasting it, it has to be recorded. And if nobody's broadcasting, then just old recordings are played. And there's no, there's no curatorial agenda as to what can be talked about, said, done, etc done a lot of them in Europe. One or two of them that I started in Europe continued on. And so these, this is another example of, you know, how we can, it's obvious, how we can have a voice in the world. And they've always been very successful and heavily used. They've varied in terms of their distance from within the museum grounds up to a 10-mile diameter circle. So a pirate radio station is somehow you can broadcast a signal and... Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're just broadcasting on the normal FM station that isn't being used by any other station. And they have a, a, a sort of a life for a while. Uh, yeah, for the run of the show. Although the very first one, the show was extended for three more months because the radio station was being used so heavily. So I might go into a museum to see a Gregory Green installation and it would be a pirate radio station. Yes. These works, you know, you could categorize them within sort of social sculpture or relational aesthetics because they're not complete if they're not used. So it's the viewer's participation. Got it. Is what it's, completes it's, the work. So it's it's active engagement. It's yes. kind of taking that that theater of the mind and bringing it into a concrete level yeah. and creating experience. Yeah. And yeah. and it's always an experience that's pending. And then someone comes in right. and they participate. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I've done a whole series of functional missiles mm. or rockets. The largest of which is called Big Bertha, and it's a three-stage booster rocket oh my. that could put a small satellite into low-level orbit. And it's mechanically complete and potentially functional, but the fuel is about $100,000. Oh. Um, so <laughs> those works were sort of talking about the idea of the ease of how what we see is tremendously destructive potential that the equipment for that can be built. Big Bertha, the reason it's called Big Bertha is I lived in Florida for two years when the Apollo missions were going up. And I wanted to be an astronaut, of course. Mm. (laughs) But it was the period when model rocketry was really taking off. Mm -hmm. And at that time, the largest model rocket you could buy was called Big Bertha. And this particular one was the largest I was intending to build. And how big Um, is it? It's uh, 34 feet long and 2 feet in diameter and 4 feet with fins. It has all, all the electronics. I'm a nice guy, really. Uh, in the past, when collectors or curators who had never met me before would come to my studio, 
they would be often be disappointed and they would always say oh we expected some guy in black beard and scraggly hair dressed in leather and angry but you're like some sort of chilled out american surfer boy <laughs> A lot of particularly collectors expect uh, artists to be a mirror image of what their work is. And it is a mirror image of what's inside me, but it's not a mirror image of who I am as a whole. Right. So, right. Or how I present myself to the world. Right. Which is much more interesting than if you were. Yes. Yeah. I think as, as a species, we're not inherently evil. And though we do have the capability of eliminating our species, I, I don't think we'll ever get to that. And whether I'll ever finish it, I've been working on a, a very long essay called Hope, and it explores evolution and change in society over the last 250 years, and specifically tracks how the level of violence has been going constantly down. So I'm hopeful. I have enjoyed this conversation tremendously. You've given I us well. so much to think about and, and sort of play with. Thank you, Gregory Green, for a lovely conversation. And thank you, Barbara, for inviting me, and I've enjoyed it greatly. This is Barbara St. Clair, and you've been listening to Arts In, also known as AI, the Creative Pinellas Podcast. Sponsored in part by the Pinellas County Board of County Commissioners, visit St. Petersburg Clearwater and the State of Florida Department of Cultural Affairs. Arts In is produced by Matt and Sheila Cowley. You can find more conversations with visual, literary, and performing artists and in-depth arts journalism at creativepinellas.org. Thank you for listening.